0: And that song uh, does provide such a powerful reminder of what it means to wait for the Lord. And I'm curious how you often respond to that sort of terminology and and how it resonates with you. Because a lot of times when we think about waiting, uh, we think about something that is somewhat passive, right? Like waiting in line or waiting for a table, waiting for a delivery, something along those lines, right? You're just, you're just standing there or standing there waiting for something to be done for you, and it's very passive in nature, when in reality, when you look at the scriptures, a lot of times waiting is not described as anything that is passive, but something that is actually very active. For example, you look at Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, it says, I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, Take heart and wait for the Lord. All right, So there the idea of waiting is paired with strength, uh, with taking heart. It's, it's paired with confidence. It's more active in its nature. Even, even the song that we sing, like a bride waiting for her groom, when we see the imagery of the wedding and we see those parables uh, uh, in the Gospels, we see this idea of a readiness that is accompanied with waiting. It's not passive. It's very much Active. And that to me, in many respects, uh, speaks to the spirit of missions, right? That, that what we are doing here as we wait for the Lord's return is not passively just sitting by, just letting life kind of uh, go through on, on a level of monotony and convenience, twiddling our thumbs, but there's this active readiness. There's this, this spirit with which we know He is coming soon, so we need to go into the world and tell others that we want to be found ready when He returns. That's why we serve across the street. It's why we serve our neighbors. It's why we go across the world. Uh, In this month, the next few weeks is really dedicated to really accentuate that, focus on that, and to be able to be stirred by that reality, um, by the scripture, by the songs, and even by word of testimony and by example. You heard the children speak to some of the folks that they're learning about, and this is a great opportunity for us to remind you of some of the folks that we're connected to as a church family that are also demonstrating this active waiting, this readiness by going and planning churches and sharing the gospel with others. And so each week, we're going to spotlight some of those partnerships and some of those families uh, and, and remind you all of some of the folks that our church is connected to, people that we want to be praying for. And this morning, we've got a special video uh, from a young family that is currently serving in Germany, not the ones you heard about uh, from the children, but another family that we're connected to. Uh, let's take about three minutes and watch this update from Lydia and Taylor Whitley.
1: Hi, University Baptist Church. Hi. We are the Whitley family. My name is Taylor.
2: And I'm Lydia. And I'm Luke.
1: And this is Caleb. And we are church planters in Berlin, Germany. Me too. Me too, yeah.
2: <laughs> we are working in partnership with the International Baptist Church of Berlin to start a new international church in Prince Berg, which is a fun, family-friendly, international neighborhood in former Eastern Germany. So we don't have a church building or we're not offering any worship services right now, but we are actively building relationships with people in the neighborhood and we are telling them the good news about Jesus Christ. We are also trying to build a team we currently work with an american woman named lauren and a german woman named miri they are part of our team but we are also trying to find other like-minded christians in our area who share our vision to invite people from all nations living in berlin to walk with jesus
1: and this fall we recently started weekly dinners in our apartment in an effort to build community and as part of those dinners. We have a time of christian meditation where we take some time to learn about christian practices like prayer silence <laughs> receiving god's promises and we practice that with our friends in hopes that they too will begin walking with jesus
2: yeah we found that a lot of people maybe aren't interested in a traditional church setting but they are seeking and they're interested in experimenting with um, Christian spirituality. So that's one reason we started these Christian meditation evenings. Um, But we just wanted to say thank you so much UBC for your faithful prayers and your generous financial support. We love you and we couldn't be doing this work without you guys.
1: So please do continue to pray for us UBC. Pray specifically for us as a family that we can grow together as a family, that we can continue to Uh, thrive and flourish here in Berlin as we plant this new church.
2: Please pray that more of our spiritually interested friends will join our weekly dinners and our evenings of Christian meditation. And please pray that the people that we're building relationships with will um, decide to trust in Jesus.
1: Yeah. So from Berlin, Germany, we send our greetings. We thank you for your prayers and support. Looking forward to seeing you all soon.
2: Tschüss!
0: Such a wonderful update uh, from the Whitley family. Lydia grew up in this church. Many of you are aware of that. Some of you are not. Uh, And then uh, their family has been back on several occasions to provide updates. You get a chance to interact with them from time to time. But they are a very close connection to our church and a family that we want to continue to pray for as they seek to do the Lord's work and demonstrate that same sort of readiness. And so as we begin our time together in the scripture, I want to pray for the Whitleys and then pray for the spirit to just lead us this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we do thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your great commission, uh, how you have compelled your church and all of us to some form or fashion, God, to go and make disciples. And we confess, God, that that is the desire of our hearts. Even though there are many days where maybe we don't feel that, sense that, or want it, God, we pray that it would truly ignite within each and every one of us. And we're grateful for examples like the Whitley family who have demonstrated that same sort of obedience and that same sort of desire We pray that you would go before them now, Father, as they continue their work there in Germany, that you would allow the right conversations to take place, that their family could continue to grow and to find stability in one another, but ultimately in you, and that you would use them as a beacon of light uh, in in the places that you've called them uh, and in the relationships and the people that you're allowing them to meet. God, that we would also emulate that same sort of obedience in our own lives, God, that we would look for those same opportunities in our own midst, in our own neighborhoods, in our own workplaces, in our own interactions, God, that you would also use us to truly be a light for this gospel. So may we now turn to your scripture, God, and be reminded of just how powerful this gospel is and what it has done for us Uh, as we turn to your word, God, that you would shape us and sharpen us and strengthen us according to your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. All right, church, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter... Eight. Uh, After taking uh, a little bit of the month of October to look at this series on facing doubts, we uh, reconnected to the book of Romans, which has really been our our foundation and our main place for the entire year. And now we started chapter eight last week. And uh, when we started this chapter last week, we really introduced the emphasis of the Spirit of God And and how that really comes to play after Paul really went into great detail in chapter 7 on the war with the flesh, now in chapter 8 we see life in the Spirit. And so last week we talked about this Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life that is marked with freedom. And and how we demonstrate and try to live out that freedom. And so that's going to kind of be the theme that we build upon as we continue to work through the first part of chapter 8, is the Spirit-filled and Spirit-led life. And today what we're going to see is not just that it's marked with freedom, but it's also marked with obligation. And that's an interesting term that we're going to really try to unpack a little bit more in greater detail later. But it's, it's really the sense of owing someone something. Right, and, and so I don't know if you've ever owed someone anything in your life, but we, we often think about this idea of owing someone something at probably different levels of intensity or seriousness. For example, a lot of times uh, we, we just say it almost in passing, like, hey, I owe you one. And, and this is often in response to when something was done for us like a favor. Somebody gave us a ride, they bought us a meal, they, they gave us a gift or something along those lines. And you say, hey, thanks, man, I really owe you one. And it's almost, almost just like a courteous response that rarely has any sort of true obligation attached to it. We may sincerely look for opportunities to repay that person for their kind gesture or their good deed, but we don't truly carry it around like a sense of obligation. It, it almost feels more like a favor. Hey, thanks so much, I owe you one. There are other times when we hear the word owe oh, and it's really attached to a financial obligation. Right? There's going to be a debt that has to be paid. You've got student loans, you've got something that you have uh, borrowed money for and you owe that person or that entity something and, and there is no way around it. You are obligated to pay off that debt. And, and when we think about owing someone in that regard, it carries more of a sense of a burden, right? Like a, a tremendous level of weight and responsibility. And then every once in a while, there are these unique opportunities where you find yourself um, in a situation, and this is fairly rare, I don't know how many of y'all have ever experienced it, but we, we hear stories of it where, where you are overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude because of what someone has done for you that you know you can't actually repay it, right? Like, you're, there's nothing that you can do, but you understand that you owe them truly like, like your life. Um, I came across this story uh, that, that captures the spirit of this idea this summer. It was a story that had kind of gone viral back in the month of July, if I'm not mistaken, and it was the story that took place in Lafayette, Indiana. And uh, there, is this, there is this pizza delivery man. And, and according to the story, I think if I have the details correct, uh, he was driving around one night, and he actually wasn't working. I think he had actually just gotten in an argument with his girlfriend. And so he's just decompressing, you know, looking for space and time. And so he's, he's driving through these random streets uh, in Lafayette, Indiana, when he comes upon a house that was in flames. And it was, it had caught on fire. And so it was, it was late at night, and so he actually gets out of his car, and he runs into the house. Now, I don't know about you, I don't know that that would be my reaction, right? Like, if I came upon a house that was engulfed in flames, or starting to be on flames, like, I would call 911, I, I would try to call for help, but I would probably stay outside and wait. Uh, but he instinctively runs into the house. And when he gets into the house, he finds an, uh, four, four children initially, he finds an 18-year-old, uh, two 13-year-olds, uh, they were friends and one of them was spending the night with their friend and then a one-year-old that the 18-year-old was holding and they were trying to get out of the house so he, he helped uh, get them to safety and as they got outside, the 18-year-old tells him, hey, my six-year-old sister I think may still be in there. So he runs back into the house and, and now obviously the flames have intensified and he goes upstairs, looks around in the girl's room, can't find her, has to search the house, eventually finds her Um, hiding in a closet. She had shut herself in a closet out of fear for the flames. Uh, So he grabs her, picks her up, makes his way back out of the house, actually had to break a window with his elbow to get out and escape the house. And this is where it became viral is that there's this video uh, from the firefighter camera who is driving up upon the house and they actually see the man running out of the house carrying this six-year-old girl. And as soon as he hands the girl over to the firefighter, he just collapses on the lawn. And, and, like, the one thing he's asked is, like, is she okay? Is she okay? It's, it's a remarkable story. And, and I've never been in a situation like that, obviously, and, and I don't know that any of us really have. And, and so I don't know how those young girls, those five children, responded to that. But I would imagine if it, if it wasn't that night or the next day or sometime the next week or really probably several years after, um, those children understand that they owe that man their life right and that's not anything they can repay necessarily right and and yet at the same time it's going to create this overwhelming sense of gratitude that changes their outlook on life itself like when they get ready for school and they walk outside there's going to be this awareness that their very existence is owed to this man who ran into the flames to save them and that's the gospel Right, like that—that that is the sense of obligation and owing that the gospel compels. It's, it's a debt we can't really repay, but it changes our whole outlook on life. That we have this awareness that there is one who ran into the flames to save us, and our whole existence is owed to him. Right? And that's the spirit and the sentiment that the gospel really commands from us. Right? It's this idea of understanding that Jesus has done everything for us. He truly has, as we will sing later, he has paid it all. And our response is to live a life that declares, so all to him do we owe. And that's the spirit of missions month. Right? Like that, that's what compels you to go and to live life differently. And that's going to be our focus as we continue this journey through Romans. And so looking along here in the book of Romans, as I said a minute ago, verses one through four that we looked at last week speaks to this idea of a spirit-filled, spirit-led life that is led through freedom. Today, um, we're going to see how that spirit-filled and spirit-led life is marked with that sense of obligation and owing Jesus everything. But let's see how Paul unpacks it. If you pick up with me in verse five, we're going to work through this just kind of incrementally. Okay, so let's start with this first paragraph, verses five through eight, and take a look at how Paul unpacks this. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Let's stop right there. Okay, so what, what Paul is doing here is he's creating a contrast, right? He's speaking to a very stark contrast between those who believe, the believing mind that follows the Spirit, and the unbelieving mind that follows the flesh. Okay, and so when, when he says, when you set your mind on something, this is not just... Hey, you've thought about or you've, you've uh, you know, had consideration of. This is really speaking to your desires. He, he's describing a heart issue. And so many scholars would point to this section of Romans 8 and say, this is Paul talking about the unregenerate man, right? Or the pre-conversion, the unbelieving mind. Okay, so this is not the same sort of description that you find in chapter 7 of flesh and spirit at war. This is like before you believed in Jesus, This is the condition. There is a mind that is governed by the flesh, right? It it is controlled by the flesh. That's that's what Paul is describing is that part of of someone's existence in life. And so I don't know where you are in your relationship to Christ, but if you are a believer, then I want you to think back to those moments prior to that decision. Or, Or maybe you're not someone who is fully trusted in the Lord, then this paragraph is something that gives us a very clear contrast between the difference for those that are going to seek to be governed by the flesh and those that are governed by the Spirit. And so there are three things, right? The the clear description is that when your mind is governed by the flesh, it leads to death, whereas governed by the Spirit leads to life and peace. And so there are three descriptions of the one that lives according to the flesh that he offers there at the end of this paragraph. The, the description for that sort of lifestyle is that you are hostile to God, we are unable uh, or unable to submit to God's law, nor can we do so, and then those who live in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. All right? so three very stark descriptions, right? Very, very Very uh, profound, very clear what Paul is trying to say. When you think about uh, living in hostility to God, that means having enmity with God, being an enemy of God. You you can pair this with some other passages of Scripture, like Ephesians 2, that's going to say, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Right Inherently, when our minds are governed by the flesh, God's wrath is, is reserved for that sort of godlessness and wickedness. You pair that with Romans 1. When we exchange the glory of an immortal God for it and begin to worship created things, then his wrath is going to be released against all godlessness and wickedness. It's a very harsh teaching, but that's what it says, is that we are hostile enemies of God. And then he goes a little bit further and says, not only that, we don't submit to God's law, nor can we do so. So pair that with verses like what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, I believe it's verse 14, says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Right, so First Corinthians has this really interesting discussion about how the gospel seems like foolishness to the world, but to those who believe it's it's the power of God, to those who are being saved. And so part of what we see here is that when, our, mind, when our minds are governed by the flesh, and we're in that unregenerate, unconversion, or a lack of converted state, then, then essentially God's law, God's way seems like foolishness. We, we don't discern his law. We don't submit to the law, and we can't do so because the spirit is not at work. We're not being governed by the spirit. And so that keeps us in the realm of the flesh, and Paul describes it there, that if you live in the realm of the flesh, you cannot please God. It's a very stark contrast it is a very vivid description of what it means to live apart from God. Now, let me ask you, what does this tend to look like? Because I think a lot of times when you read that, not many of us would say, well, I consider myself an enemy of God that just wants to uh, significantly disobey God. So a couple of things that I want to say as we try to unpack what that looks like is, again, this is really describing pre-conversion. Right? So think back on what you might have been or if you have not yet decided to follow Jesus, then, then maybe you haven't had a chance to fully diagnose what that condition is and where your heart really is. And this, this passage is, is peeling back that, pulling back that curtain to reveal what's really going on. So when we think about those sorts of descriptions, and I was trying to place it in things that I've either experienced in my life or have seen in others, a lot of times we demonstrate this through anger. Right? Like you can look around the world and there are some hearts, there are some folks that are just flat out angry at God and angry at others. And as a result of that anger, they become ambassadors of evil. And so you can think of world figures who have done incredible injustices and crimes against humanity. You, you can think of uh, stories that you've seen on the news before of just terrible displays of evil. right? And, and that is a hostility towards God and his creation. Uh, But sometimes it's not gonna represent itself in anger and that kind of blatant um, uh, uh, ambassadorship towards evil. Sometimes it's gonna reveal itself through pain and suffering, right? We talked about pain and suffering a couple of weeks ago and how we can struggle with that. But you think about relationships that you've had in your life where someone has hurt you, right? And, And someone has caused you significant pain. A lot of times our response to people that hurt us is to cut them off. Right? I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want them in my life. When their name comes up, we belittle it. We, we, we badmouth them, right? And then we accuse them and blame them for everything that's gone wrong because of the pain that they've caused us. And a lot of times, that's how we treat God, right? I've got pain, I've got suffering, so I want him out of my life. And when his name is brought up, I'm gonna badmouth it, I'm gonna belittle it, I'm gonna accuse him for being the one to blame for everything that's gone wrong. So sometimes that hostility comes through the avenue of pain. Sometimes it's indifference, right? There's a lot of people that I know who have never considered trusting in Jesus or, or allowing their mind to be governed by the Spirit because they just haven't thought about it. They don't even care. They're indifferent to spiritual things or religious conversations. It's something that they don't even concern themselves with. They don't even give it thought. And you may sit there and think, well, that isn't, that's true, but that doesn't feel like that's hostile. That doesn't feel like that's, adversarial towards God, but think of it this way. Think about that happening within a home, like within a a relationship, like with a spouse. If you have somebody that loves you and has committed themselves to you and wants to be in relationship with you, and you come home every day and you pay them no attention, you are so indifferent to them, their needs, their wants, their words, and you just flat out ignore them, that is hostile, Right, you think about others who would view uh, religion as foolishness, like we talked about a second ago. For some folks, man, if you're going to be religious, that just means you're not very intellectual. You haven't given this any thought. You haven't, who, who could in their right mind reason to believe in some genie in the sky? You're just coping with the harshness of life. It's just a security blanket for you. And we treat it as foolishness. The one that probably most applied to me when I think about my pre-conversion state was the camouflaged mind or the concealed mind that was governed by the flesh. That applies to a lot of us. Like for me, growing up in Abilene, Texas, where there's a church on every street corner and I grew up in church, I knew how to play the game. Like I I knew what to say. I knew how to respond. I I knew how to navigate all those, those situations and circumstances. I called myself Christian, but only I knew what was really going on in here and in here and what was really governing my life. I I had no interest and no desire in having Jesus as Lord. Did I want him as Savior, did I want heaven? Yeah, sure, but I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. Right, so for a lot of us, we can conceal it, we can camouflage it, right? And all of those things lead towards this disposition that is hostile towards God, right? Essentially, what, what I want us to think through is the contrast between a mind that is governed by the flesh and one that is governed by the Spirit. Because I think Paul is, is intentionally trying to be incredibly clear between, about the differences between the two. And, and, if, and if this is you, and you're still in that place where you haven't truly ever trusted Jesus as Lord, here's what Paul is essentially saying. There are two paths to life. One leads to death, and one leads to life and peace. There is no in-between. There is no third option. There is no other alternative. There is no hybrid choice. Like, you're on one of two paths, a mind that is governed by the flesh, that is hostile towards God, unable to submit to His law, and isn't pleasing to God, or your mind is going to be governed by the Spirit that leads to life and peace. And so he's, he's creating this contrast so that we can have that awareness of that stark contrast that exists between those two options. Now, as he continues, he reminds the church, he reminds his readers what happens for those that do choose to have the mind governed by the Spirit. Right? He reminds his audience of who they are. Follow back up with verse nine. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh But are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then they do not belong to Christ. First comment here on verse 9. Part of what he's saying is that when you have a mind that is governed by the Spirit, the Spirit of God removes you from the realm of the flesh. Right, so this kind of takes us back to what we were talking about last week and the freedom that we have in Jesus, that he has set us free. That a lot of times we say we believe in Jesus, but we convince ourselves we're stuck in the flesh, that we're held captive. And, and what we have to remember is that the spirit of God is much stronger than the spirit of the flesh, than the realm of the flesh. And we are actually removed from that realm Right, he he saves us, he rescues us from that realm, and so we don't need to continue to live as if we are held captive to those things, right? And so he establishes that, kind of harkens back to it in verse nine. Now look at verse 10 and 11, I love this. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness, right? So this is what Paul has now kind of been talking about for the last chapter or two. Our bodies are still subject to death, right? We don't get to escape uh, this body of death, nor do we get to escape death of the body. Salvation has begun. It is not yet complete. Does that make sense? Like, Like we can have this assurance, but we still inhabit a body that is subject to death. And so that's where you see chapter seven. There's going to be this struggle. There's going to be this tension. There are going to be these moments where we're reminded of that incomplete, awaiting for redemption sort of moments, right? Like we're gonna sense that and feel that, but we can know that the spirit of God is in us and is going to lead us towards righteousness, right? Like that's, that's what it says, that, that if you are in Christ and you belong to Christ, that spirit is in you and it's gonna give life because of righteousness. So look at how that leads into verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, I I want us to truly reflect and celebrate verse 11 this morning. Okay, this is a remarkable verse, right? Essentially what Paul is saying is that when you are still living in this body that's subjected to death and you're going to still war with the flesh, your, your, your ability to combat that is not resting upon your own strength. It's not your own spirit. It's not your own will, your own reason, your own abilities, your own, your own giftings, your own skill set. Like That's not what you're depending upon. Right? What is at work within you is the same spirit. Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, can I say that again? Like it is the highest power, it is the Holy Spirit of God that is at work within you, that is going to bring about this righteousness. The same Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and will bring life to your mortal bodies. What we are seeing is that we are not called to long for an escape from the body, but a redemption of the body. And we can know that that's gonna happen because the Holy Spirit of God is at work within us. It's the same spirit of the one, of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Do you believe that? Like, do we live that way? Like, sometimes I marvel at how believers live and the mindset of the church because we can live as if we are so defeated (laughs) and we get so worried. We get so uneasy. Man, we'll look at this world and we'll get so concerned about politics and war and corruption and conspiracies. Man, we'll look at our jobs and, and our families and our relationships and we'll be so dissatisfied and we'll just think this is the way things are. We'll give in to lust and addiction and all these things, and we will just walk around as if we're defeated. And what Paul is saying here is, you should have a spirit of victory, because Jesus has overcome it all. Men, when you experience victory, you don't mope, right? You, You don't walk around in doom and gloom. TCU is eight and O, right? Nine and O. There's one I'm trying to forget, okay? And that was quick, too, y'all. Y'all didn't let me, let, like, <laughs> Anthony's like, nine, brother, come on. Nine and O. Oh. And are you walking around, if you're a TCU fan, are you, like, dooming, well, we won again. I guess that was a good game yesterday. We'll see when we play again. When you experience victory, there is joy. There is celebration. There is confidence. There is a swagger. And that is how we're supposed to live, church. Let me say it to you again, and I want to hear you say amen. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. Amen? Amen. Believe it. Know it. Be joyful with it. Be confident in it. What that means is that you don't have to be angry. You don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be sorrowful. You don't have to be concerned. You don't have to be lost. You don't have to be stuck. Because the spirit of the living God that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you and in me. Amen. Let's live with that victory. Therefore, therefore, verse 12. If that's true, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. You hear that? If that's true, if we're going to say amen, we're going to celebrate that victory, then we have an obligation. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We have an obligation. Now that word obligation, as I said earlier, really means to be bound to something, to owe something. And so I guess that would be my question this morning, right? If we truly understand what Jesus has done, right? That there, is, there are two ways, there are two paths governed by the, by the flesh, governed by the spirit. One leads to death, one leads to life and peace. And though we may struggle in this mortal body, we have been given the spirit of the living God, the one who has raised him from the dead, to give us a sense that we will find that victory and that life will be brought to our mortal bodies. We will experience that victory. So how do you respond, church? Is it like Jesus just did you a favor? And you're living a life that essentially says, thanks, Jesus, I owe you one Is it a burden? Like, does does it create the sense of, man, I'm just obligated to pay off this debt? Or does it change your whole outlook to life? That when you wake up in the morning, you have an overwhelming sense that your very existence is owed to the one who ran into the flames to save your life. See, here's what's remarkable when we understand a life that lives with that sort of obligation, that sort of gratitude. Man, it changes our every day. It changes our whole outlook. And this is part of what 13 reveals. I love this about verse 13. is that when you live with that sort of obligation and you kind of create your life that way, then essentially what happens is that you inherently put to death the misdeeds of the body. Right, like that's what happens. You, you put to death the misdeeds of the body because you're not living according to the flesh, you're living according to the spirit and that's gonna, that's gonna be what brings life. And that to me is something that the church so often misses and what makes Missions Month in my mind so remarkable and such an, import, such an important emphasis, not just once a year but really throughout our lives is to understand that we have not just been called to die to something, we've been called to live for something. Right, and a lot of times, what we think of when we think about our faith are all the things that we can't do, right? All the don'ts, all the rules, all the prohibitions, all the things we've got to be against, and all the things that we need to die to, right? So I've got to die to greed, I've got to die to lust, I've got to die to pride, and all these do's and don'ts, right? And all those things are true. And we, all, we are all called to take up our cross and daily die to self. But what we have to also see is that we have been given the opportunity to live for something. right? When when you live with that sort of obligation, when you live with that sort of gratitude, with that sort of understanding that your very existence is owed to the one who has died and given his life for you, then you fill your life with a devotion for him. You fill your life with a sense of victory, and it compels you to go and love others. And all of a sudden, you fill your life with certain things like caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, going to the lost, going across the world, planting churches. You reorient your whole life around this gift, and what you do is you snuff out the flesh. (laughs) You don't even have room to breathe because you're living by the Spirit. Is that how we're living? Is that what we truly understand this gospel to mean? And we should be filling our lives up with all the things that God is allowing us to live for, not just the things that we have to die to. And so when you think about your everyday, when you think about how you you go about um, everything that God has put in front of you and everything that He is calling you to do, what does it look like? Do you have that sense of gratitude? Do you have an understanding of this obligation that has been put before us and to live accordingly? And when we do that, that's when we truly begin to understand the fullness of what it means to see that Jesus truly has paid it all. And so all to him we owe. I'm going to reorient my life around this truth and live fully for it. I want to give you a testimony to really accentuate what I believe this passage is calling us to, what it's encouraging us to consider. And and I've shared with you all before um, that more often than not, when I think about what has influenced me as a pastor and my approach and my philosophy to how to try to lead and encourage a church, the overwhelming majority of those influences come from people uh, who do not live in this country. Uh, it comes from relationships that I was able to, to build or stories I was able to hear as a missions pastor and it's indigenous pastors and leaders and believers from other countries and how remarkable their stories are and how compelling um, their testimonies have made the gospel to me. And so I've shared a lot of those stories and testimonies with you in the past and, and the one that I'm gonna remind you of this morning I think I've shared years ago. I don't know how many of you remember remember it or how many of you actually heard it, um, but this came at a time when I was visiting a family who was serving in Niger, and uh, one of my good friends was serving there for a couple of years. Niger is 99% Muslim, okay? So it is, it is absolutely the way of living. Uh, to, to live in that country is to be Muslim. You don't question it. So when you hear stories of conversion, uh, it's pretty remarkable, and so I took a, short, uh, a small team to go visit our friends that were stationed there, that were serving there, and our, our real focus was just to encourage the family that was living there and to really get some testimonies of what God was doing through their work and what we were hearing God doing in different villages. And so uh, my friend wanted to take me to meet a man by the name of Husseini, who lived in a village uh, called Tarodi, which, which, which was just on the outskirts of the capital city of Nehemiah. And so uh, we take our trip, or we take our, our team up to Taroti, and we go into Husseini's hut. And it's exactly what you would probably imagine. I mean, it was, it was a small, one-room, uh, mud-constructed hut. And the team of four or five of us, we, we sit on the ground in front of Husseini, who's, who's sitting on this chair. He's got this really young daughter who's playing in the dirt right at his feet. She's kind of that toddler age. And he begins to tell us his story and his testimony. And uh, by way of a translator, we, we get to, to hear what God had done in his life. Husseini had obviously grown up and was a Muslim, and in fact, had developed into an imam. He was a, a religious leader within the Islamic community where he, where he was and where he lived in his village. Now, what's interesting uh, that you can often see in some of these areas is that a lot of times surrounding regional uh, religious leaders within the Islamic faith, other imams, will go to these other countries, and they will encourage and resource and support the local leaders there so that Islam stays strong. And, and so there are these regional imams that would come in to Niamey and to Niger, and uh, Husseini was very much supported and very much credible within the Islamic community. He had tremendous financial security as a result of their endorsement support which was pretty unusual, right? To be that well-established as a leader within the Islamic community and also have that kind of financial security in a very impoverished area was pretty remarkable. But that's the sort of support that he had, and that's the life he was living when he started to have dreams. He had several dreams. The, the first dream that I remember him telling me was uh, a dream of, like, sun-scorched heat that was just almost... Unbearable for the people that were suffering underneath it. And he was constantly walking around trying to find relief, trying to find shade, couldn't find any. uh, And and those who were suffering under the sun-scorched heat were carrying these beads that looked like and represented the Islamic prayer beads. But as he was searching for shade, he, he came across a small group of people that had found refuge in shade. And when he went upon them, they were people of the book. And then he woke up. And he had several dreams like this. Uh, Another one was about a bridge. One side of the bridge was fiery and intense and suffering. The other was peaceful and cool and calm. And he was trying to figure out how to get from one side to the next. And he kept having these dreams of this nature. And so there was a missionary who had reoriented his life and was in Husseini's village, and so in the cover of the darkness, because you don't go and talk to this missionary, so late at night, Husseini went to the missionary and said, can you help me understand my dreams? And the missionary's response was simple, he said, just pray for God to give you understanding. And so Husseini did, he started praying to God, he kept having similar dreams, and one dream, he was back on that bridge, and a man came out to the middle and invited him to follow him to the other side, and so Husseini knew after that dream that Christ was calling him, that Jesus was calling him to follow him. And he started meeting with this missionary regularly and became a vibrant believer in the community. And it created a tremendous response of persecution. When the uh, regional imams heard about this decision, they threatened his entire financial security to take away his job, his money, his car, his finances. And Husseini's response was, take all of it. I don't need it and fully demonstrated that mindset of what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul. He was run out of his own village because of the response from his family members who began to threaten to the kill him. They were so ashamed of his belief in Jesus. They were, there were rumors that they were going to take his life. So he, he lost his wife for a short time, had to move to Nehemiah to escape this persecution. His mom tracks him down And in the middle of the night, she comes to him and she starts begging and pleading with him to return to the village and to renounce Jesus. And she's begging with him, she's saying, I brought you into this world, I gave you life, I cared for you, I nurtured you, won't you please, for me, come back. what she's saying is, I'm fearful for you, I'm fearful that they're going to kill you, that you're gonna lose your life. For my sake, spare me that grief, give up on this Jesus. And knowing that that was the request, he looks back at her and he says, Mother, you did give me life, but can I ask you, can you give me everlasting life? And she said, you know I can't do that. And he says, then why in the world would I leave the one who can? (laughs) He was reunited with his wife. Eventually, they had twins, twins that they lost at birth. And everybody began to accuse them. See, this is God's curse for you following Jesus. And he stayed strong. God blessed them with other children, and they have endured. And now to this day, he is one of the beacons of hope in that region. He travels from city to city in strategic places throughout Niger, preaching and proclaiming the gospel. As my friend texted me this morning, he is a five-foot-six, 130-pound spiritual giant. And he is a representation and a reminder to you and me of what a life looks like that says, I'm gonna choose this path governed by the Spirit. And no matter what comes my way, I know I can overcome, I know I can be victorious. You can take my money, you can take my families, you can take my security, you can take all those things because I have the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead alive within me. I see fully that Jesus has paid it all and all to him I owe. That's the song that Husseini's life is singing. It's the song we've been called to sing as well, church. And so my hope and my prayer is that we can learn from testimonies like his and like from one another in this morning with joyful praise and in confidence in that spirit of victory, seeing that spirit-filled joy that tells us that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is at work within us. Amen? He has given it all. So all to him we do owe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you. And we confess there are so many times, God, that we fall short in our obligation to you, our response to you, our faithfulness to you. And so I pray that in this morning, God, in this moment, we would no longer fall victim to the idea that we walk in a spirit of defeat, that we give in to a spirit of doom and gloom, God, but that we would truly be awakened and stirred by those who have gone before us God, that we would be awakened and stirred by your holy word to recognize that you have truly brought us into the kingdom of the one whom you love. God, that we have been set free through the cross and through the hope of the resurrection. God, and that that spirit-filled and spirit-led life can be something that each and every one of us experiences in a manner that brings change, that brings transformation, that compels us to go and to live for you. God, we thank you for stories like the Whitleys and Husseini and the many others that could be shared this morning. We ask that they would inspire us to once again worship you, understanding that we owe you everything that we are. We love you, Father, for the gift of grace and mercy, and we give you our hearts, our souls, and our minds that you would be glorified in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.